The first reading tonight comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. As soon as they had left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he, d- he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And the second reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission. God gave me to present to you the word of, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may have been be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are, are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you that this so that, one d- n- that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is, is Christ in Christ is. Well, good evening, everyone. It's so good to be at church with you all this evening. My name is Jimmy once again. For those who don't know me, and uh, just ignore the sounds in the in what's coming from over there. I'm not sure what they are. They're fireworks. I thought it was, you know, there you go, okay, there you go, the fireworks, hopefully they'll stop soon. Hey, if you're a guest here tonight, we're in the middle of a series called Living in a Post-Christian World, and uh, this is a really cool series, I think, because as Christians, we live in a world that is just not Christian. We live in a world that's challenging and hard because the world runs against what we think and believe is true, and so this whole series is about how to be Christian in a world that is otherwise not Christian. How we can keep Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life, uh, but also remain loving and caring towards our world. Not trying to run away from our world and hide off in our little holy huddles as such, but how we can be, remain faithful to the good news of Jesus as well as doing that for the sake of our world in love and care for them. And so tonight we, can, we are continuing our series looking at this passage, how that we pray before we begin. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, 
You care for us. You want us in your presence here tonight. You've gathered us as your people. And we pray as we hear from your word this evening that you give us ears to hear, that you open our hearts and our minds to receive your word and that you'd be, you would encourage us to take this into our life and apply it where it needs to be applied so we can live for you in this world. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Do you think of yourself as a good interpreter of reality? A good interpreter of reality. What I mean is, do you think you can determine what things are, what life is, what the world is around you, what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is a wise decision and an unwise decision? There are many people in the world today that are good interpreters or people we think are good interpreters. And there are other people in our world that we think aren't good interpreters. There are many you know, self-proclaimed you know, celebrities or commentators on politics and life who they consider themselves as good interpreters of reality, of life, of economics, of politics, of what we should do as a country. And they range from people like Waleed Ali from The Project to Alan Jones on 2GB to Julia Baird on the drum. And so people think these guys are either good interpreters of reality or bad interpreters of reality. And tonight's not about working out who's good and who's bad. But I think there is one interpreter of reality that we can all agree is a bad interpreter. And it's one that I think most of us perhaps encountered when we were very young. But a guy called Scuttle, the seagull from Little Mermaid. You see Little Mermaid, about a mermaid called Ariel, lived under the sea, you know the story? And she's obsessed with the world of above. She's obsessed with humanity and, and every artifact she finds from the world of above, she collects it and she tries to work out what it is. What she does is she takes the artifact to her friend Scuttle, the seagull, who is a self-proclaimed expert in all things human artifacts. And so one day she finds a whole bunch of stuff in the ship and she takes it to the seagull and what falls out is this, what we think, is a fork. But Scuttle is the expert, remember? And so he says what this is is a, is a dingle hopper. And what you do with this dingle hopper is that you comb your hair through it, like I did tonight. And, and you get your nice little hair do all done up. And so Ariel's like, great, a dingle hopper. I know what that is now. Fantastic. When she comes on land, if you've seen the, the show, she's very unfamiliar with her surroundings. She can't really speak at all either. She can barely walk. And so she's so unfamiliar with her world because it's not her world. But then, when she takes a seat at the palace, at the dining table, with the butler and prince in front of her, she sees something she is familiar with, the dinglehopper. And so she picks up the dinglehopper and starts combing her hair through it, doing her hair all nice and done up. And the prince and the butler are looking at her going, what are you doing? Why are you using your fork like that? It's not until Ariel gets that reaction from the prince and from the butler that she realizes that perhaps Scuttle wasn't a good interpreter of reality. Perhaps he didn't really know how and what things were from the world of above. You see, it's important that we know how to interpret reality so that we can act in a way that corresponds with reality, so that at the very least we don't embarrass ourselves like Ariel did, but more importantly, so that we make the right decisions that will be good for ourselves and the well-being of others. And the one thing we need to do this is wisdom. 
Wisdom, broadly speaking, is the quality of having experience and knowledge and good judgment. Wisdom helps us to interpret reality really well, our whole lives, our world around us. But one of the biggest barriers to being wise is the means by which we try and become wise. You see, most of us, we treat wisdom as a bottom-up exercise, starting with ourselves and postulating about life and meaning and God and trying to work our way up, so to speak, to work out through reason or through science the meaning of life and the existence of God. But what we learn from Scuttle is that any interpretation that begins with ourselves trying to reach out and interpret a world that we don't know anything about is probably not going to end up as being a good interpretation of reality. See, science can tell us many things that are true and real about this world, but their wisdom only extends to what can be tested, experimented, and what can be worked out through reason. But when it comes to questions of God, who is above this world, and questions of meaning of life, which is not obvious in this world, science fails to be a good interpreter of reality. It ends up being the scuttle of our world in some sense. The thing is, wisdom is more than a, than a bottom-up exercise. What the Bible tells us and what the Little Mermaid reveals to us that we need is a wisdom that is top-down, a wisdom that comes through revelation to help us to see the mystery that we cannot unveil ourselves through reason or science. And this is what Paul is talking about here. That in Jesus Christ, the mystery of God's will has been revealed. And Paul's duty as an apostle is to proclaim what this mystery is. If you look at verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See, although Paul is the one writing this letter, God is the one who is revealing the mystery. The mystery of life and purpose and meaning that's been there since the Old Testament, that's been there throughout all of history, but has been veiled. Only shadows have been seen, but now has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And the mystery, particularly we read in verse 27, is this. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this. Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of of glory. The one who is the image of God, we saw last week, the one through whom God made all things, the one through whom God is going to reconcile and bring all things back to where they should be, that one, that Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption, is in you. Those who trust and believe, Christ is in you. Now, there are so many wonderful benefits that come with that, that we have experienced tonight, the wonderful joy to come together and sing to our great God, the joy to pray to our God when we need Him, the joy we have to confess our sins to God to receive His forgiveness. But the one we're going to focus on now, one of the benefits that we have now is that when Christ is in you, we have the means and the wisdom to interpret our world, our life, our reality in a much better way. You see, look at Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul explains his desire as he writes this letter for the Colossians. And we read at the back half of verse 2, verse 3, he desires for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, 
which is Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, to embrace true wisdom, we must embrace the one who has come from above, Jesus Christ. Unlike Scuttle from The Little Mermaid, Jesus is a good interpreter of reality, of life and of this world. Because as we saw last week, he holds reality in his hands. And he is the one who is reconciling all things, reality, in himself through his death on the cross. And therefore, that makes him the best guy to go to about how he understands this world, its meaning, its purpose, and God's will for it. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the end of chapter 1 tonight and, and how having Christ in us gives us the wisdom to make us better interpreters of reality, of life, and its purpose as we look at how it affects Paul. You see, as we, as we read this here, we see that Paul revealing the mystery to us, we can see how it affects him and his life as well as he shares. And as we look at that, we're going to see that helps us tonight as well become better interpreters of reality of the world around us. So the first thing we see, the wisdom of Christ helps us to have better wisdom when it comes to our suffering. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice, rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I don't know about you, but I don't rejoice in my suffering. I don't enjoy suffering. I don't certainly like suffering, let alone rejoice in it. I complain when I suffer. I ask God, why am I suffering? I ask people around me, why am I suffering? But Paul here can go, I rejoice in my suffering. It's an odd response. Why can he say that? Well, on one level, it's because he knows his suffering is for a good purpose, a worthwhile goal. He's been preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and that word has been going out to the church in Colossae, to all around Asia Minor, to all around the world at the time. And so therefore, he can see that this is a worthwhile cause to suffer for. He knows that the empire doesn't want him to do this message, to preach this message. But he does anyway, knowing the power of this message is working, it's going out. It's a worthwhile, righteous suffering. And our world can empathize with that in some sense. If you watch any war movie, my favorite being Saving Private Ryan, we have this idea of righteous suffering in our psyche where people who are willing to put their life on the line for others to save them or to do good for them, and therefore suffering for a good cause, righteous suffering. So our world can, can understand that. But you see, Paul's suffering runs, or viewer's suffering, runs so much deeper than just it being for a good cause and worthwhile. We read as he continues, he's suffering, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, read plainly, it looks like Paul has become a heretic in a space of one verse. It looks like what he's saying is that in my body, I am filling out what is lacking in Christ. His sacrifice wasn't enough. His sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins didn't achieve that entirely. And now I've got to finish the job in my own suffering. And only when I finish the job will it be fully effective. But that runs very contrary to what we read earlier on in the chapter. Cliff quoted earlier on, verse 13 and 14, that, that Paul, uh, Paul says that God has transferred us out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, that we have been saved fully through 
Christ's death on the cross. And in verse 20, we're reminded that in Christ's death, through his blood shed for us, that he is reconciling all things. Through that one decisive moment on the cross, Christ is making all things new. So therefore, we can know that Paul isn't saying that Christ's death wasn't enough to save us from our sin. He talks about everywhere in his letters, the once for all nature of Jesus Christ's death to save us from our sin and make all things new. So what does he mean? What does he mean by, I am filling out what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Dick Lucas, an Englishman and retired Anglican minister, helpfully suggests in his commentary that Paul is picking up on a phrase used by those uh, who were critiquing the Christian worldview at the time. The idea of lacking something. You know, there was people you know, around the church at Colossae who were commenting on their view of life, the Christian faith, and saying, you're lacking something in here. Jesus isn't enough. You know, you've got to add this and this to the mix. You've got to do these rituals, believe these things about God and about the way of life you should live, and then you'll be complete and you will suffer less. You see, their suffering was a sign that they were lacking things in their life. Lacking to be fully human, in a sense, the complete kind of person. Now, our world's view of suffering today hasn't really changed much. Suffering for so many people is a dehumanizing act. And whether it's suffering because we've got cancer, or we're sick and ill and then bedridden, or if it's suffering because we've been persecuted for what we believe, or if it's suffering because we're lonely, because we've got anxiety and depression. Whatever it is, great or small, our world interprets suffering by what it robs us of. Suffering only becomes good if we can somehow overcome it and gain back what it took. But if we can't, then we're left like we're lacking something in our life. We're left as if to think that we're less human, in a sense. And any worldview that can't properly deal with suffering is one that is lacking. And so what is being critiqued here then is is that faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, is not enough to make us fully human. It's not enough to complete us. Suffering is somehow proof that, that, that something is lacking there. But Paul takes such a critique and he turns it on its own head. And I've tried to write out what I think Paul is saying here. I've got a quote on the screen, uh, Sammy. I think it should be there. There it is. So this is my translation of what I think Paul is trying to say here in this verse. I'll read it out for us. So this is Paul speaking. Actually, in response to the critics, I am feeling out what is lacking, just not in the way you think. For what is lacking is my share in Christ's sufferings for his body, the church. For just as his suffering on the cross triggered the reconciliation of the world, the promise to make all things new, my share in his suffering through my own, brings us one step closer to the glorious future held out for us. This is why I rejoice in my suffering. To be clear, Paul is not saying he likes suffering, like it's fun. No. But the fact that Jesus is in him helps Paul to interpret his suffering in a whole new way. Because he is connected to the body of Christ, united to him. I think when Paul first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
that you know, profoundly shaped his view of suffering. You see, Paul had been persecuting Christians for a very long time. Before he became poor, he was Saul. And he would try and kill Christians. That was his job for a living, to make sure they suffer as much as he can. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, when he became a Christian, the first thing Jesus said to Paul was, Why are you persecuting me? You see, what Jesus is saying there is saying, if you persecute or cause the suffering of my people, you in effect are essentially causing me to suffer. You're persecuting me. You're trying to attack me and my body. And so that has profoundly shaped Paul's view of suffering, that he sees his suffering not as his own, but Christ's suffering as well. There's a sense that Jesus' suffering work on the cross continues. That's not complete in the sense that his suffering continues through the body, the believers who we are united to in him. His suffering is our suffering, and our suffering is his suffering. Now, his suffering on the cross was the decisive work that sets us free from sin, the decisive work that makes us right with God and brings all things to become new once more. But there's a sense that his suffering has not yet finished as it continues on in the church. And so Paul sees his suffering as somewhat completing his part, his stage in the mission of belonging to God's people, looking forward to one day when all suffering will be finally complete and Jesus will return and make all things new at that point and that moment. You see, our suffering is not a sign of what we lack, but what we are being filled by. And so not what we're being filled by, or rather whom we are filled by, the Son of God, the hope of glory in you. You see, worldly wisdom says your suffering limits your capacity to enjoy life. That it's a sign you lack something, that you're less human in a sense. That if you're chronically sick, you can't enjoy life as a human being. That if you're single, you can't possibly be satisfied as a human being. That if you're jobless, you can't possibly have purpose as a human being. That if you're childless, you can't, perp- you can't have meaning as a human being. That you have mental health issues, depression or anxiety, that you can't possibly keep up as a human being. That if you're someone who is sick and dying in palliative care, then probably you should end your life as a human being. That's the world's view on suffering. Read any of Peter Singer's blogs on ethics. Peter Singer is a scientist and ethicist who believes that if you, if you have an unborn child with Down syndrome, that child, there's an ethical reason to put that child away and down, to abort that baby. Because how can that baby enjoy the full quality of life with Down syndrome? That's our world's view on suffering. That's the view that is constantly bombarding you every day through media, through books, through life, through newspapers, whatever it is. Well, tonight, brothers and sisters, I want to say that the Word of God says this, suffering doesn't make you less human. Suffering doesn't mean you lack anything when it's in Christ. Because we are made whole through suffering, through the suffering of Jesus on the cross. You see, our suffering may rob us of things in this life. It may rob us of some things that we, want to, we enjoy doing. But having Jesus in us means that we can interpret it in a new way as partaking in his own suffering. So just as his suffering on the cross actually achieves 
the wonderful hope of all things being made new, we are partaking in that work and we can see His work being completed in us. And we helping Him to complete that work in essence as we suffer. Our suffering is no longer a sign of what we lack, but what we are going to become, whole and complete. Jesus' work on the cross is that decisive moment, and we continue in that suffering, looking forward to the day when, when He returns to make us whole and complete. It's a sign of what is to come. And so instead of complaining and lamenting, Paul can rejoice. Jesus in him helps him to interpret this reality in a new way. Suffering, it doesn't rob him of joy. It doesn't rob him of his life. It reminds him of eternal life. It reminds him of what is to come. It reminds him that he is partaking in that mission as he suffers. And that's true for us as well. No matter what, not just being persecuted for your faith, but even as we suffer from sickness and illness, from loneliness, from depression, from whatever it is, all that suffering we share with Christ because we are part of his body. His suffering is our suffering. And Paul says that helps me to see suffering in a whole new way, interpreting it in a whole new way. It reinterprets what we see means to be complete and mature, which is now what Paul goes on to next. We've just talked about suffering. Now Paul wants to help us to see that Jesus in us means that we can interpret our purpose in a whole new way. Wisdom in purpose. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, the object of Paul's proclamation as he preaches the whole word of God is Jesus Christ. They proclaim Him so they may present everyone they preach to as mature or complete. That word can mean both. In Him. The revelation of Christ in him, the hope of glory, not only reinterprets his view of suffering, but it reinterprets his purpose in this world, in this life. It's not to get rich quickly, enjoy life, and go on vacation and have great times with friends. It's all about living for Jesus and presenting the word of God to his people, making them fully mature and complete. The complete person in our life is so much different, isn't it? We have like a checklist in a sense. You know, It's all about having the perfect life compared to other people. So, you know, we have the husband or the wife. We have the three kids, the dog. We own the home. We have a vacation home. We go on holidays. We enjoy, you know, good times with friends. We have a good bank account. You know, all these things all take part in what it means to have the complete and mature life. It's a checklist of some sort. But have you ever felt that once you've reached one stage... You kind of feel empty after that and you're looking forward to the next day. Some of you are in high school still and you think, when I just finish high school, oh, I cannot wait to be in uni and life will be so much better. It's not. It's not. And then when you finish uni, you think, I just want a job and work full time. I love my job, Cliff, but it's not necessarily always the best thing to work full time. And you think, oh, you know, I rent right now, but how good it would be to own a home? That's what I'm feeling right now. How good would it be to own your own home? But I talk to other people and it's stressful. And it's not necessarily the best thing to have at that time. You see, we have this checklist. And we think if we just have that and have that and have that, we'll be complete. But often it leaves us feeling quite empty. 
And me and Katie, as I said, we have felt this. You know, we don't own our own home. We rent. We both own second-hand cars. Uh, we're both in jobs where the, where the pay won't go much up now or ever. And so sometimes I find it difficult when we compare ourselves to our friends. You know, I've got friends of mine who went to high school with who own their own homes, not units, homes. They're in jobs that pay six-figure salaries. They go on overseas holidays all the time. They go to the snow for the weekend, like every month, at least twice a month during the winter holidays. They have the life it looks like, the complete life. And so when I compare myself to them, I think to myself, am I lacking something here? Am I missing something in my life? You see, we only see, it only takes someone to have a better version of what we have to make us feel like we're lacking and incomplete as human beings. Somehow we forget so easily, how Kay and I can forget so easily, just how wealthy we are in this world, materially speaking. Not just in this world, but in Sydney or even in Manly alone. We forget how much God has blessed us materially here. And the reason why we forget so quickly is because I am only looking at those who have more than me. Those who look like have the complete life over me, who looks like I'm lacking something here. And so here's the thing. What you look at and listen to will be what shapes your view of the complete life, the mature and full life. Our world bombards us with this message, having that checklist, having this and that and this and that to have the complete life, to be, to be mature. And if we, lessen, if we listen for too long, look for too long at that message, that will soak into our hearts to the point where we actually begin to Christianize it. We think that it is mature to have a boyfriend or girlfriend and get married. It's mature and complete to have children. That it's godly and responsible to own your own home, in a sense. We begin to Christianize it a little bit there. Not realizing that hasn't come from Scripture, that's come from the world. And that's why it's so dangerous, this post-Christian world, why we need this series to remind us how to live for Christ in this world. You see, this is why Paul is so adamant of proclaiming Christ. And it's why we must also only allow Christ through God's word to define what it means to make us complete. Only he can complete us. In him, we are complete. You know, interesting, our world focuses so much on this checklist, on what you can do, what you should do to be mature and complete. But Paul doesn't do that. He actually tells us what God's word does to us what Christ does, what being in Him does to us to make us complete and mature. In a sense, the Word of God, when it's preached to us, when Christ is proclaimed to us, it does a powerful work in us as we sit underneath it and hear it. God is, God's Word is transforming us as we receive it and accept it in our life. And the more we place ourselves under God's life-changing, giving Word, the more we will see Him in us, making us complete in Him as we obey and follow and serve Him. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't focus on obeying God's Word in an active sense and seeking to be holy and godly and obedient to Him, but rather we should see all our efforts becoming more and more in Christ as a work of God entirely. That all our effort and striving to be godly is in a sense generated by the Word of God that we hear in our life. 
And so if you read Psalm 1, blessed is the man who is like a tree planted by streams of living water, talking about his devotion to the Word of God. You see, when the Word of God is rooted in his life, it overflows into other areas of his life. He lives obediently, following him. He's like a tree planted by water that when it is in dry seasons and when winds come, he is firm and strong in the Word of God. And so the Word of God generates for him this godliness and obedience, this picture of what it means to be complete and mature. And that's why Paul can say in verse 29 that he toils, struggling with all his energy. And yet it's not his own energy that he's struggling and toiling with. It is Christ's energy that he is powerfully working within him. Jesus in us gives us wisdom to see that Christian maturity, the complete person, doesn't come from having stuff and having checklists in our life, but it comes from being in God. It's a work of God himself to make us holy, to make us his. And when we interpret reality and the pursuit of maturity and the complete life in this way, it frees us from feeling like we, have, we don't measure up to other people. For it's not about how much you have, it's about who you have. That is the goal of Christian maturity, who you have, not how much you have. If you have Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, if you sit under his word and follow him, then you're on your way to becoming complete and mature. And not even suffering can take that away from you. And perhaps we could sum up the goal of Christ's wisdom in that way. Christ's wisdom is all about how you can become the complete person in him. He gives us his wisdom so we can interpret reality in such a way where we can know how to live and be complete and whole. And it comes from trusting in his word, remaining in him, and knowing that nothing, no, not even suffering can take it away from us and devalue us and dehumanize us as his people. We don't like anything when we're in Christ, no matter how much we suffer or how much we feel like we're not measuring up to people around us. In Jesus Christ, we don't lack anything. And that means we can have reason to rejoice always because he gives us hope for eternity, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have come into our hearts, that you know us, you love us, and, you want, and you're working in us by your word to make us complete. You're helping us to see more and more of what you're doing in us. That as we suffer either for the gospel or even in just in life, that our suffering is your suffering. And that you, we are working with you to see this world come to completion. We thank you, Father, that that to be mature and to complete is not to have it all together in this life, to have all the stuff that our world tells us we should have, but rather it is to simply know you and follow you and rejoice in you and what you have provided for us. The forgiveness of sins, the hope of glory. Lord, in a world that is working tirelessly to be mature and complete, help us, Lord, to give them rest in your you, to talk about you and the hope you give when they trust in you as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. If you'd like to stand, we're going to worship.